Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing, so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners. And of course, you got to have great tasting food. You got to have great tasting beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week Stay tuned for this week's episode. You know, one of the industries that I have found fascinating is one of the building block industries of the food and beverage industry is agriculture. And I've got a special guest today. He's a 30 plus year veteran who has agreed to come on to come through the gauntlet today of the podcast and kind of walk us through Uh, their business, their business model, the challenges, what's happening in the world of fruit. We have Dirk Winkleman. He's the president and chief business development officer at Vanguard Direct. How's it going, Dirk? Very well. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to be on this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. And I understand you've got a couple dogs uh, down there with you today (laughs) with with the storms you're encountering out in uh, Colorado. Yes, and hopefully they stay nice and quiet. Well, if not, it just shows we are uh, we're taking advantage of the work from home opportunities, right? Absolutely. When I'm not traveling two weeks out of the month somewhere in the world, this actually is a nice place to be. You know, I have to say uh, before we jump into our topic, I absolutely love your website because I, I was noticing under produce, and I know you're not responsible for all this produce, but I'm amazed at just how long some of these growing seasons are. I mean, you're someone can come to your website and look for literally when everything is really in season, when it's out of season. I mean, it's everything from apples, asparagus, avocados, berries, broccoli, <laughs> carrots, cherries, figs, garlic, ginger, grapefruit, grapes, 
kiwi fruits, kumquats, lemons, lettuce, <laughs> limes, mandarins, mangoes, melons, onions, oranges, pears, pineapples, pomegranate, squash, and stone fruits. Wow. Yeah, well, the good thing is I get to focus in on just a few items. Otherwise, that list would be too ominous. Well, yeah, it'd be very difficult to manage that that many SKUs. Well, tell us a little bit. Give us the overview um, of, of your particular focus, and then I definitely want you to kind of dive in and explain your business model to us. On my side, specifically, me personally, as far as the organization, the business is concerned, I oversee Vanguard Direct, which is our North American sales organization for our owned production out of Peru. And then I also work for another one of our entities, Vanguard International, where I sort of wear two hats. One is both on the business development side, as well as participating as needed, as demanded in various aspects of their business, whether it's sales, customer development, uh, new products, et cetera. And then I also sit on the board finally um, in a number of different roles, both as president of Vanguard Direct, as well as chief business development officer involved in taking a look at acquisitions, or I should say acquisitions of new ranches specifically in Peru. So which of those delicious and craveable fruits that I mentioned are you directly responsible for? Well, on the production side, grapes specifically, on the own production that we have in Peru and overseeing the global sales strategy for that owned production. And then on the international side, since we have offices scattered throughout the world that work with third-party growers, whether it's in South Africa, Chile, Egypt, et cetera, there I get involved in overseeing multiple products, whether it's citrus, deciduous apples, pears, um, a little bit on the berry side, mostly cherries. So it's still very focused. I would say roughly about a half a dozen different product categories or fresh fruit categories that I get involved with, in addition to our own production in grapes in Peru. Just how big is this fruit industry? <laughs> Billions of dollars. Uh, it's huge. And our particular segment tends to sort of narrow the focus, but still pretty significant as far as total sales distribution throughout the world. So I want you to explain your, your business model because we talked about it a little bit offline. I wanted you to kind of kind of walk people through the model, how it works, and explain the trends that are shaping the industry right now. So what I'd like to talk about specifically is the business model that we developed for, for our Peruvian operations. The concept starting six, seven years ago was to build something entirely different than what was being done in the rest of the world. So when we took a look at grape production on a global scale, it was still fairly dominant within what we called traditional or common varieties, varieties that were sort of old world, whether it was, for example, Thompson's, Flames, et cetera. And those varieties had a lot of issues, whether it was lack of productivity, higher cost, um, a growing disinterest on the part of retail in those varieties. Our model was to, to be focused on new varieties coming from the top breeders in the world that were the new and exciting varieties, both from a consumer perspective as far as 
taste and demand, as well as on the economic side of actually producing those varieties. So less input costs, higher yields, better overall, let's say shelf life, et cetera. So our business model basically said, we are going to focus 100% on these new IP varieties, protected varieties developed by these breeders. We are going to focus initially on the Southern Hemisphere within a certain time frame, and be able to provide that on a global scale to both retailers as well as to the wholesale markets, whether it was into North America, Asia, Europe, et cetera. And what made that model unique at the time, and still is, is we are the only company, I believe still one of the only companies globally, that is 100% involved in these patented unique varieties. Most other growers around the world are scattered. Some of them might have some participation in these IP varieties, but mostly they're still focused on the traditional old world varieties. When we take a look on a global basis, if I had to put percentages within the different main production areas, whether it's say South America and or South Africa, or even North America and California, you're probably only 35, max 40, 45% production in these new varieties. So still the majority of the production on a global scale is focused on the old varieties, high cost, lower demand, more complex as far as the actual production of those varieties. So are you actually so talking about focused. like a, a genetic difference between like this old, old world? Yes. And, okay. Yep. A whole different gene pool, a whole different set of genetics involved in these varieties. And you, and you guys would, would own that. We don't own the genetics, but what we own is we own the land where it's produced, and we're focused on producing only those varieties. We have very close relationships with the what we consider the key premier breeders in the world. We are one of their larger customers as far as actually buying their genetics or planting their plants and putting them in the ground and then selling them on a global basis. Uh, out of the three main genetic companies that we work with, I would say we're definitely top two, three customers of theirs on a global basis for their varieties. Dirk, I have a question for you. So how long does it take once you've sown your seeds for, for the uh, farmers to go ahead and, you know, and, and kind of reap that? Well, it's actually, it's not a seed. It's actually a vine. So it's a plant with a rootstock or a variety with a certain rootstock that is let's say, more apt or more adaptable to the particular production area that you're in. But as far as time frame is concerned, each part of the world is a little bit different. Peru has somewhat of a very unique situation because from when we put the stick, what we call a stick or the, the vine in the ground, the baby plant, it can be 14 months when we're having our first crop. 14 months later. It doesn't mean full production or what we call full maturity, but we can potentially be, depending on the variety, at 70% of full production within 14 months. 
when you take a look at other parts of the world, whether it's California, Chile, South Africa, you're at least two, sometimes three years wow. before you have your first crop. So it gives us definitely a leg up or an advantage in terms of being able to have a new variety producing and available for sale and distribution into the global markets. Well, you better be right. I mean, you, you better understand what the, what consumer sentiments are. You better understand what the uh, <laughs> retailers and grocers want if it's if it's that kind of a lead time. How do you guys manage that process? Well, there's the breeders are working on these new varieties over a long period of time before they release them commercially. So we have the ability to take a look at what they call their field trials over the course of a number of years on these different varieties that that they're playing with. And breeders have breeders have a process just like anybody. I mean, they may have who knows how many different, let's say, varieties that they're testing out there. It can be hundreds. And over the course of years, a couple of years, they'll pare it down based on the different characteristics that they see as the plant matures and as they start to understand how to actually produce a variety. So we're there and we're invited to these field trials to see how these varieties develop so we can see how attractive they are. And then obviously we take a look at the characteristics much like the retailers do and consumers do in terms of how does the fruit look? How does it eat? You know, what's the taste profile? what's the shelf life, et cetera. And based on that, yes, there is a little bit of a roll of the dice that you make when you're selecting these varieties to plant on a commercial basis. And everybody takes a different risk approach to, to how they plant in terms of the volumes or not volumes, but let's say the acreage. Right. So some growers will say, okay, I'm willing to take a risk on this variety. I'll plant 10 hectares or let's say a block of 24 acres. In our situation, we're fairly comfortable with the research that we do on these varieties and the relationship we have with the breeders to say, yes, we're going to take a, a bigger position in some of these varieties than maybe a smaller grower would. And we can plant to commercially large scale volume to be able to be more significant to the major retailers around the world. If you have only 10 hectares, let's say, you're not going to be able to sit in front of one of the major retailers, whether it's a Walmart, HEB, et cetera, and say, I can give you a program throughout the entire season. Whereas if you're 200 or 300 or 400 hectares, you have the capability of sitting down with a major retailer and say, I can put together an entire program for you. So it's for us, it's somewhat different, I think, than other people. We're in a position of being able to say we can take a significant position to be important to you longer term. And that, again, is another characteristic, I think, that sort of sets us apart and as is an important part of our business model. Our concept is to be scale for major retailers on a global basis. Well, what role does the grocer play? Do they do they dictate what they what they want? I mean, obviously, it's going to take a lead time for you for you to get it into it's the been, stores. It's been very interesting. I, you find in some parts of the world, for example, California has always been sort of the leader in terms of 
testing these new varieties. So they actually give us a little bit of a, of a preview in terms of what we could expect, and that helps. Then they established the position initially also with retailers. And what we've seen over the last couple of years, and it's been, it's been much more of a speedy process in the last five to six years, the retailers are starting to change their preferred list of varieties. And some are being very specific. Before, they wouldn't necessarily have a, a laundry list of, say, you know, five, six, seven varieties that they would accept. Because it was common varieties, it was pretty much if you had a red grape that had to be part of your part of your profile at retail, you would accept flames and a number of other varieties, pretty much whatever was out there. Now with the new varieties, we're finding that retailers are being very specific and they're giving us a list of say 10 varieties and saying, these are the 10 varieties we now accept. And what we're seeing is that those old traditional varieties are not even on the list anymore with a number of key retailers. And that helps to define how we approach the business as far as which varieties we select and also our approach with those retailers. And the other thing that's helping quite a bit is that you've got retailers that are not new variety or as new variety interested as certain other retailers, but they're starting to see the benefit with their competitors of having, or let's say not having the disadvantage of not having those varieties as part of their mix, either in terms of consumer demand, shelf life, et cetera. And that is helping to push the industry more and more towards these new varieties. I think we're gonna be seeing a much more rapid acceptance and move on the part of retail to these new varieties over the next few years because of the benefits that they're seeing as an industry. Well, what kind of benefits are they? What are some of the changes in these varieties that the average consumer might might not know and they, they can take a look or be on the lookout for? Well, I would say that the biggest issue, if we compare some of the traditional varieties on the shelf versus the new varieties, one is taste profile. The, well, let's start out with appearance. First of all, you take a look at, let's say, a bag of green grapes, traditional green grapes that are out there, and you'll see a variation in berry size. You'll see, you know, berry size that tends to be smaller. You'll see certain condition aspects of those varieties. For example, the stem condition might not be as vibrant. It might not be green, you know, a bright green. It'll be dehydrated. So the appearance is going to be, let's say, lackluster or not as attractive. With these new varieties, the appearance is going to be, you've got a much bigger average berry size. You've got a very consistent color. You've got greener stems. So from an appearance perspective, first of all, as a consumer is looking at buying a bag of grapes in the store, if you compare side by side, you're going to see a shocking visual difference between an old variety and a new variety. That's the first item. Then when a consumer buys it, and let's say it's a new green grape, whether it's an autumn crisp that comes from Sun World or a sweet globe that comes from IFG versus an old traditional Thompson, they're gonna take those home. And if they had a side-by-side -side comparison, they're gonna eat the autumn crisp or the sweet globe versus the Thompson. And it's gonna be, again, one of these shocking differences in terms of 
crunch, taste, and then finally, shelf life. They're going to see a difference over time in terms of how the product holds up. You know, if you're a consumer that leaves your, let's say, grapes on the shelf at ambient temperature versus putting it into the refrigerator and having it 32 degrees, you're going to see a difference over time in terms of how that product holds up. You're going to see the Thompson's, let's say the older variety that may deteriorate or conditionally not be as attractive in two or three days versus one of the other newer varieties that's going to look better after a couple of days. So again, it's a, you switch back to an appearance perspective. So these aspects are critical from a consumer perspective, but more importantly, the buyer from the, let's say the supermarket, the retailer, he's looking at the results of his same store sales for these new varieties versus the traditional varieties. And they wouldn't be making a move towards having a short list of these new varieties if they didn't see that the actual results at the store level was significantly better, both in terms of returning consumer demand, same store sales increases, et cetera. And very importantly, a much lower shrink at store level. So those items all play into what we're seeing as far as the the retail interest and demand for these new varieties. But I've noticed a trend with consumers. They are more interested in transparency. They want to know a little bit more about the farm, a little bit more about the you know, the country of origin. Has that really trickled over to the fruit world? I would say maybe not as much as what we would like. Because you see it in coffee. You definitely see it in coffee. I mean, I would like to, from both a personal and from a business perspective, see much more of that going on. Because in our situation, we're very cognizant of our position within the community, how we're dealing with certain social elements, uh, labor pool, as far as natural resources, how we're dealing with water management, et cetera. And we're very, I would say, we're very advanced in that sphere. And your smaller growers, unfortunately, and it is unfortunate, you know, they don't have the, maybe the financial strength or the ability organizationally to be able to go down that same path. Doesn't make them bad growers. It's just an unfortunate reality of, you know, the extra resources that are required, whether it's financial and or personnel resources that are required to be able to have that type of a position, visual position within the industry. I do think that as we, as we go forward in the future, we're going to see much more interest in having, you know, a company be very front and center in terms of how they deal with the environment, how they deal with their labor, et cetera. But that's going to have to be driven more by the retailer than it's going to be driven by, let's say, our position in going forward and trying to, whether it's force and or make ourselves more visible in respect to those elements. The retailer is really the one that is ultimately pushing for or has to push for compliance related issues, you know, how you operate in the world as a, as a supplier. 
And I would like to see that. I would like to see that on the part of the retail side take a much more active position. It's not to say that they aren't. I mean, we're, retailers do require, you know, very, very detailed information in terms of how you, how you deal horticulturally at the field level with your products, you know, your applications, um, certifications, et cetera. I mean, there, there's a very, very strict compliance with pretty much every retailer we deal with in terms of those elements of the business and those elements of the production at the field level. I mean, consumers, they are checking labels. I mean, someone was telling me recently that like 40% of people now, you know, read labels before they buy something. And that's really good news for people who have clean labels and good products and they're not loaded with fillers. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that would be a benefit for a company like you and your growers who are doing it the right way that, Somehow you can get that message across. You're able to create, you know, some kind of a, of a website with a QR code and consumers can just, mm-hmm. you know, for their, if they're interested, you know, just open up the phone and the QR code pulls a, you know, an interesting something about the farm and kind of connects the growers to their food. I think consumers are just more and more just kind of waking up to the, to the food supply chain. You know, they, and that they is, yes. you know what I mean? Yes. That is becoming of greater interest to consumers, no question. And there's much more interest in knowing where your fruit comes from, how it's being produced, et cetera. And that's all positive. Interestingly enough, again, we haven't seen as much of that coming back to us in terms of inquiries or interest in knowing about where where we're dealing and how we're dealing with our product. Um, I think probably it's being driven again more at the retail level. That's the first level where consumers sort of have an expectation as to the store or the retailer that they visit and that they deal with is doing the right job in terms of their supply base. So if you if you are going to, let's say, a Kroger, et cetera, and that's your regular place that you go to, you have a certain level of confidence that Kroger is doing what they need to do to assure that the product that they have on the shelf level is good product, that it doesn't have, you know, improper applications. It's, you know, that the supplier is dealing within their environment in their country in a proper manner, et cetera. So the consumer's first, I believe, level of expectation of certainty of supply security and supply correct behavior is actually at the retail level or driven more by the retail level. I agree. You know, you walk into a a natural or an organic store, your expectations are very much in line mm-hmm. that products are being developed and sourced in a more, you know, sustainable way, for example. So you're right. That's kind of managed at the, at that level. Um, I, I'm kind of curious, I, I, as we kind of wrap up, I, I'm, I've got a more of a business question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all gotten advice over the years. Is there, a, are there some words of wisdom that, that you have received that have helped, that have really helped you through the industry? <laughs> See, you can plan, uh, you can prepare, Dirk, yeah. and I'm always going to give you a little bit of a change up. Hey, that's that's fine. I always tell all of our people, always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. 
you know, any decision you're about to make, any position you're about to take, you know, it has to be, it has to be the right thing. And that's, I know that sounds very broad and vague, but once you break that down, you know, you're not taking advantage of people. You're not misleading people. You have to maintain your integrity, both as a person, as well as a company and doing the right thing has a very deep implication in terms of your position in the business. Um, customers you deal with, suppliers you deal with, uh, service providers you deal with. I mean, everything has to be straightforward. It's not to say that you can't argue and or negotiate to your best possible advantage, but you always have to consider what is the right thing to do. And that will always hold the day. But that's still being honest. I mean, negotiating for your best position, that, that's an honest position to take. Yeah, and it's, it's not easy these days. I mean, with all the issues that we're facing globally, um, whether it's social issues, political issues, um, general issues such as the whole supply chain, logistics, uh, shipping, container availability, we have a multitude of challenges on our plate. And as we sit down, for example, with customers, as we're about to negotiate contracts for the coming season, which generally happens between, let's say, late June or July through September, you know, we're dealing with significant increase in costs, probably to the tune of 20, 30 percent because of ocean freight cost, fuel cost, fertilizer cost, labor, et cetera. And we're sitting down in front of the retailers and we're trying to negotiate and proved, you know, average price to take into account these kind of costs. And we know that, you know, retailers, customers are going to push back, especially as they're dealing with, you know, their consumer base, their population that is facing, you know, inflation, higher costs, et cetera. And their buying decisions are going to be modified, moderated. And we have to push, we have to push, we have to be honest with these guys about and our customers about what we're facing and try and negotiate the best possible position. At the same time, we understand that, you know, we're dealing with a very unique world and are we going to be hundred percent successful in covering hundred percent of our increased costs? No, there's got to be a, some type of middle ground that's met and, you know, we put everything on the table with our customers. We say, this is what we're facing. And it's not good for anybody to be pushed to that point where you're not making money because if you're not making money in our case, then the decision is very simple. You know, do we reduce? You're what not going to lose money. We- you just cannot lose money. And at least the, you know, all consumers know pricing is going through the roof. So do buyers. Everyone knows the environment that we're in. I don't know if you've looked at buying a house anytime recently. <laughs> I just sold one. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, congratulations for getting, you know, two X. So we were, you know, we, we've been kicking around the idea of, you know, Hey, do we downsize? Do we find something else? And, you know, you, you go around weekends and check out cities and different places and, you know, you go into and talk to a builder who's in the middle of breaking ground. They're like, look, we can sell you the lot, but Hmm. you're going to have to be okay with an escalation clause. And we don't know what it's going to cost you when we actually go to, you know, put your house together. So look, it's crazy out there. Mm -hmm. So it's not a fun time to be a buyer. It's not a fun time to negotiate that. But obviously we all going to have to 
get through it and, and hopefully our, our global supply chain will, will normalize and we can get, get this out of control inflation back in order. Well, Dirk, I, I, I just want to thank you for coming down, taking time out of your day. We had tried to have this podcast earlier, but you um, had such a busy uh, travel season. Obviously, you know, your, your, your work over in Peru uh, kept you away. You know, you had to be down there with your growers. We're, we're glad you're back. And, you know, grapes are one of those staples that we all buy, particularly heavily, of course, in the summer. It's just a fun, kind of refreshing, you know, meal for some meal, not really a meal, but, you know, dessert is kind of part of, you know, mm-hmm. snacking, things like that. I really wanted people to understand a little bit more about what goes on kind of behind the scenes. And everything that you've said, I think, is, um, I think, it should be pretty eye opening for people. And uh, I just want to thank you again for, for taking some time out with us today. Well, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we will um, we'll think of you next time we go buy a, a bag of, <laughs> of autumn crisp. <laughs> we'll go look for our bags. <laughs> See if you can find them in one of the retail supermarkets. Now. I mean, come on. Everyone's, everyone's going to be going, it's just autumn crisp? Which stores do you shop at? Oh, let me ask you that. Uh, I'll tell you if we, we got, work with them. Yeah, we got Publix and Kroger. Okay, I believe some of our product gets in there in a roundabout way. They're not two of our primary customers as much as I would like them to be, though, actually. Uh, Wait a minute. Now, you're the chief business development officer. Well, we've been growing over the last five years. And as you start to ramp up, (laughs) it takes a little while to get in front of everybody. It takes a little while. Look, (laughs) you tell them, Tony... The host of the Food and Beverage Podcast. Come on. <laughs> I will do that. I'll listen, remember that, that as a line. Shit, and you need and a door. if they look at me with wonderment on their faces, then I'll listen, have to go into a long explanation. You need a door open. You just tell them. <laughs> Very good. I'll use your name. We'll see what kind of leverage he gives us. <laughs> and we're going to have to edit this out. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, All right. Well, listen, have a great day. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Really, thank you. Appreciate it, Dirk. Okay. Bye-bye.